Well, we are, are marching through our series on the life of David called In Search of a King. And uh, I want to start with this, that one of the things that I have learned over the years, not just in my own life, but in so many people that I have talked to over the years, is that it is possible, it is possible for someone to have a deep longing for God and also resent God. That doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it's a lot more common than you think, and it might be a lot more common in your life than, than you think. It may be a conscious thing or a subconscious thing. And if you don't understand, I think you'll feel that when we look at this story and then we'll try to deal with it. Now, this is a compelling story. And if you were listening, it was kind of a confusing story. And it, it raises these very important issues about life and spirituality. And it also raises one of the strongest objections that people have about the Bible. Now, the story follows what is known as the Ark of God or the Covenant of God or the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the significance of the Ark is found in the Ark's deep symbolism. And the symbolism points us to the heart of Christianity. It, it teaches us about the holiness of God and the destructiveness of our sin. And it also shows us that there is redemption for our souls. There is great purpose for our lives. And there is access to God. It represents the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. And therefore, that's why we do things like, you know, celebrate Christmas. Now, I want to encourage you this morning to not get distracted when the story gets frustrating because it is a frustrating story. Instead, when you find frustration kind of stirring up your heart, I want you to use that as a sign to remind yourself to ask why is this story in the Bible? I mean, what is this story trying to, to teach us? Instead of rejecting it, try to understand it. You know, what is this story telling us about who Jesus is and what he has done? Because in the book of Luke, that's exactly what Jesus taught us to do, right? That's what he taught us to look for. In this David story, look for the gospel story. In the darkness, look for redemption. All right, so keep that in mind as we walk through this. Now, this story can be broken down into four different parts, and we're going to go ahead and get started with part number one. And since we don't have uh, slides this morning, I strongly encourage you uh, to take advantage of the note page that's inside so you can follow along with that um, and fill in, in the blanks. It'll help you track with uh, progress and where we're going. And then, um, and also there are some questions that you can use for your own reflection or discussion with other people. Um, part number one, the ark in God's presence. That's part number one, the ark in God's presence. Our story starts in verse one of uh, uh, the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. And in verse one in the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, it says, David again 
gathered all of the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Now, it sounds like he's getting ready to go to war again, right? He's not. He's pulling them all together for a giant parade. It is the parade to end all parades. David is bringing up the ark of God into Jerusalem. The presence of God is entering the city of God. God is being enthroned as the king of Israel. Now, what is the ark? And just to clarify, it's not to be confused with Noah's ark. That's a different thing, different story, all right? This is totally different. And, and let me tell you about it. After God uh, liberated the Israelites, that liberated them from slavery out of the hands of Egypt, and God led them through the Red Sea, they escaped, and, and God told Moses then to build a tabernacle or a tent of meeting so that God, that God might dwell in the midst of his people. And the inner room of the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies. And in there was one piece of furniture. It was the Ark of God. It was a, a chest, a chest about uh, three and three quarters feet wide, two and a quarter feet deep, and two and a quarter feet tall. And the cover of this chest was called the mercy seat. It was made of, of pure gold and was placed on, on top. And the rest of the ark was, was overlaid in gold on the outside and the inside. And then on top of this mercy seat, on each end of the cover, there were these uh, a, a solid gold cherubim on each end, a type of angel with wings outstretched over the middle known as the, the mercy seat. And no one could ever enter that inner room except for the high priest, and he could only enter that room one time of year. And there, in the inner room, right above the, the ark, between the two cherubim, was what's known as the Shekinah glory, the holy presence of the transcendent God dwelling in the midst of his people in a special way. And so when Israel, after they were liberated from Egypt, after they crossed the Red Sea, and they, they made the tent, they made this ark. When Israel crossed the Jordan River and entered into the promised land, God told them to carry the ark into the river. And when they did, the water stopped, and the nation crossed the river on dry ground, just like the Red Sea. And then God told them to, to carry the ark around the city of Jericho, and when they did, the walls came tumbling down. And then, and then years later, when Eli was the priest, the, Is, the Israelite army went to battle with the Philistines, and the sons of Eli you know, took the, the ark into battle, maybe like as a good luck charm or something, and the Israelites lost the battle, and Eli's sons were killed. And when the Philistines, and when they, when they were killed, and when the, the Israelites lost, the Philistines captured the ark. And when Eli heard the news, he fell over and died. And while the ark was in the land of the Philistines, 
it created all kinds of havoc for the Philistines. And so the Philistines were like, never mind, you can have it back. Right? Take it. They sent it back to Israel. And it ended up in some guy's house, a guy named Abinadab. And you get the feeling like it was thrown in his garage or put in the backyard covered with a tarp or something. Right? It stayed there for years on the border of Israel, a a testimony to King Saul's ambivalence towards God. But when David becomes king, he says, we must have the ark in Jerusalem. Why? Why is David bringing up the ark? Well, David has two reasons for bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And the first reason is to show Israel who the real king is. David knew that the only reason he became king was because of God. And he did not want the Israelites to trust in the military. He did not want the Israelites to trust in political power. He did not want, want the Israelites to put their trust in, in swords and chariots and, and, and money. He wanted them to know who their real king was, and that the real king was the, Jeho- the Jehovah God. And so he had the Ark of God, which represents the presence of God, brought into the capital of Israel. The second reason he brings it in is a personal reason. David loved the Lord, and he longed for the presence of God. He longed to to know God intimately, for for God to be real to him. And David wrote in Psalm chapter 27, he says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty. David knew that his greatest need was a vital connection with God. Now, every single one of us, every single one of us, longs for the presence of God. I mean, even if you are not a, you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you need to know that your deepest longings really are a longing for the presence of God because the longing beneath all of our longings is a longing for the presence of God. Our deepest desires can only be filled by God himself. That's part one. The ark and God's presence. And that brings us to part two in your notes. The ark and our problem. The problem is this. Uzzah touches the ark and God strikes him dead. That is a problem. Maybe when uh, Tom read that part, um, you were going along, maybe listening, because we normally do, and then, then you heard him say that, and you're like, wait, needle off the record. What just happened? And you thought, you know what? That is exactly what I hate about the Bible's view of God. And then you see the Bible presenting us with like this cranky God with a short fuse who lashes out unpredictably at well-intentioned people. But time out. This is what I was telling you about. This is when you kind of like stop and force yourself to ask, what is this really teaching us here? Right? What is this teaching 
us, about God? What is this teaching us about us? Well, let's look at what happened. Uzzah and Ahio were the sons of Abinadab, right? The ark had been staying at their house. And these two sons were in charge of the ox cart. Ahio was walking out in front of the ox cart, and Uzzah was walking along the side of the ox cart. And then what happened was the ox, stum- the ox stumbled, and Uzzah, with, with good intentions, put his hand up to steady the ark. He instinctively reached out to prevent the ark from falling, and when he touched it, God struck him dead. So what in the world is going on here? Let's add some context, okay? Um, Moses, back when the ark was constructed, God had given Moses very specific directions on how to move the ark. The ark had four rings, two on, on each side, and it was moved with, with two poles that were slipped through the rings, and then it, then it was carried. It was never to be put on an ox cart. It was only to be moved by a particular group of Levites. And first, they had to consecrate themselves, and no one was ever to touch it. So here, they're breaking, like, all of the rules. And then finally, Uzzah touched it and was struck dead. I mean, can you you imagine? I want us to feel that. Can, can, Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, everybody is celebrating. They're partying with that, like everything in them. I mean, there's all of this music and all of this singing and all of this dancing with thousands upon thousands of of people. It was a high point in the life of David. It, It was a high point in the life of Israel. Finally, the ark is coming to the capital of Israel. It's the presence of God was coming to Jerusalem. And God was, was finally being enthroned as, as king. And then suddenly, without warning, tragedy strikes. Uzzah, who's singing God's praises, right, sees the ark shake and then instinctively reaches out and bam! He's dead. I mean, shock and silence just sweep over everybody. And then they're shrieking once people realize, well, what happened? And, and screaming and, and, and people are just, just backing away from, from the ark. Everything absolutely changes. And this right here is a good example of what people hate about the biblical view of God. They say, you know what? This right here is primitive. It is superstitious. It is antiquated. It is dangerous. We can do better. And they say, you know, so, so he broke the rules. Big deal. Look at his heart. He was totally sincere. He expressed religious devotion to God, and God strikes him down because he broke one little rule. I do not want a God like that. And I'm telling you, that is what a lot of thoughtful people think. Okay? I'm not insulting anybody for thinking that. That's what a lot of insight, a lot of, a lot of thoughtful people think. But actually, that kind of perspective is based 
on a major misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is that, you know, Uzzah didn't do just the right thing, so God got him. That is absolutely not it. That's not what's happening here. Okay? So, what really happened? Well, yes, God does have rules, and God has good reasons for his rules, and we'll talk about that in a second. Rules are important. But the question is, what is God's purpose behind the rules? Is it because he's just like a major killjoy or something? He doesn't want us to have any fun? Is that why? That's not it. There are very important, there's a very important purpose behind the details. And you go through the Old Testament, and you see uh, for that time, they had dietary rules, and they had clean rules and unclean rules, and rules about the ark, like don't ever touch it, like ever. Those are the details. But what do they mean? What is God's purpose in all of these rules? Well, there is one critical point that God is trying to get into our heads. And in all sorts of ways, God is trying to press this into us. And like a, a good teacher, he uses powerful illustrations. And here's the point. The point is this. And it is a critical, important, sobering point. Our sin is serious. It is dead serious. It's not little indiscretions. It's not just stepping out of, you know, out of line a little bit. Our sin is dead serious. One thing that I've been noticing, a thought that dawned on me lately, um, when I see warning signs, especially, you know, for, for safety, right? The signs that say, don't do this, and they have like an illustration, and, and my first thought is, well, something happened that inspired that sign. Somebody did that, and somebody said, we need a sign. And so they made a sign to tell everybody else not to do that right? And it was a loving thing to put up a, a sign. I mean, it would have been an unloving thing for somebody to say, no, we don't need a sign. Let's just see what happens, right? No, they put up a sign. You see, I, I remember a sign uh, that had a, a telephone pole um, with, with power lines draping down and exposed ends, and there was like little lightning bolts coming, coming out of it, and like a stick figure holding on to the, the hot wire being like zapped, right? And it says, don't touch downed power lines. Even if you're trying to help, right? Don't do it. You, your, your intentions may be sincere. Uh, you, you may have, you, you know, good in mind for other people so that they don't get zapped. But if you touch it, you will get zapped, you know, some people just ignore the warning, ignore the sign. Not me. I got it. I'm strong. I can, I can defy the laws of physics, and I can take care of this, right? People still get zapped. Now, what God is saying here is this, that your sin is serious, and your sin separates you from me. And, and you need to know that I am holy and you are not. 
I, I am holy and, and you are sinful. You need to know that. And just like high voltage and flesh can't, you know, dwell together, you know, your sin and I cannot dwell together. It separates us, and it is not a little separation. It is not a little gap that can be bridged with some kind of religious activity and religious procession. The gap is so great that, that not only can't you bridge it, God says that I can't bridge it either. And God, God, God's saying, you know what, I can't simply say, I know you have good intentions. I know that, that you are sincere, but, you know, come on in. That won't work. Your moral efforts don't work. Your sincerity and your devotion have nothing to do with it. It won't work. And God says, you know what? I am not some old cranky deity that must be appeased through religious observances. I am an all-holy God. But I'm also gracious. I'm also a gracious Savior. So for you to come in, something has to be done about the sin that separates us. He doesn't leave us there. So here, when Uzzah didn't find uh, Levites to transport the ark, he put the ark on an ox cart and touched it. Yes, he was breaking the rules, but his, but his, instincts, his instincts show that he ignored God's main point. He ignored the warning. Uzzah thought the dirt you know, on the ground would defile the ark, but that if he touched it, it wouldn't. I mean, he has no concept of the seriousness of his sin, absolutely no concept of the absolute separation and, and the radical intervention that is necessary. He did not understand his problem. That the only way to be right with God is through a radical intervention of grace. All right. Anyone still kind of struggling with this, right? Struggling with this idea that, that our sin is that serious? I understand, right? Of course we struggle with it. Of course we do. I mean, think about it. If our sin really is that bad, of course our sin would work on our hearts to make us think that it was not that bad, right? Now, notice how flexible God is. Here they were, breaking all kinds of rules, didn't use the poles, no Levites, put it on an ox cart, God let it go. It wasn't until Uzzah touched the ark that God struck him. Why? Well, God knew this was absolutely the best time to get loving warning and loving truth out to everybody. We can't think that God took someone who, you know, uh, if, if given a little bit more time and, and a little bit more, more explanation or a little more discussion would have believed the, go the gospel because we can't believe that because God wouldn't have taken them out otherwise. God is showing us your understanding of religion rejects everything that I'm trying to tell you. It, your understanding of religion 
makes me into being like this cranky God. And if you're good enough, you can overcome my crankiness. I am not cranky, God says. I am not cranky. I am holy. I'm not in a bad mood. I am holy. And your sin is serious. You need to know there is no way to be near me except through a redemptive sacrifice. That's part one, the ark in God's presence. And then this last one was part two, the ark in our problem. And third, the ark in God's grace. So after this horrible disaster, David comes to an understanding of the gospel. And understanding the gospel involves a three-step process. Understanding the bad news, understanding the good news, and understanding grace. All right? First step, understanding the bad news. After Uzzah was struck down, David was angry. That's what it says. So, who was David angry at? Or with whom was David angry? God? It wasn't God. Was he angry at, uh, at Uzzah? No. David was angry at himself. And we know that because the first thing he says in verse 9 is, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David got the point. David realizes my sin is serious. It is dead serious. How can the presence of, of God ever come to someone as sinful as me? Now here's what I've experienced and here's what I've seen in so many people I've met over the years. A lot of times in the process of understanding the gospel, you get worse before you get better. The first step from going from, from moralism or the first step going from self-righteous religion to the gospel is to accept the bad news. And the bad news, the first step in understanding the bad news, the first step is understanding that you are lost. And nobody wants to admit that they're lost. You can't just go into God. That's, that's bad news. And once you get hit with the bad news and you have that realization uh, that you can't just go into God, you start thinking, you know what, how will I ever experience God then? I am not good enough. And so often, this is what I've seen, so often it takes a disaster to show us that we're actually a lot worse than we think we are. We're, we're actually a lot worse than, than we'll admit to anybody, a lot worse than we'll even admit to our, ourselves. And I, I know there are people here today who, who don't believe that, and you think, you know what? I'm not really that bad. And of course you don't think that you're really that, that bad. None of us want uh, to, to think uh, about that. But sometimes the bottom has to fall out of our lives for us to actually see it. And the truth of the matter is, we never really learn that we're sinners just by being told. 
In fact, our automatic response if somebody says, you're a sinner, is to say, forget you. Get out of my face. Right? We, boom, we reject it right away, so quickly. And so often we, we never understand that we're sinners just by being told. We need the warning, but usually it takes so much more to that, more than that. We usually learn by being shown. And sometimes, like David, it takes a disaster to show us. And I'm telling you, it is painful, but it is grace. It's painful, but it's grace. The only way to understand the gospel is for us to get the bad news first. But once you get it, the gospel doesn't leave us there. The second step is to understand the good news. The, the ark is God's promise that he will provide a way for us to be able to come into his presence. After Uzzah died, they must have said, you know what? What are we going to do with this, this ark? You know, it's going to kill everybody. And they look around the nearest home. It belonged to a guy named Obed-Edom. And they said, hey, Obed, how would you like this shiny gold-covered ark? And he said, yeah, right, no way. And they said, yes way, and they left it there. <laughs> but guess what? The Lord blesses Obed. The Lord blesses his entire household. And the Lord made sure that David got the good news about that. The ark means that God is holy, but it also means that there is a way to have fellowship with this holy God. And the big question is how? And that's the third step, understand grace. When David heard that the Lord was blessing Obed, what did David do? He went to the Bible that they had up to that point. He went to the scriptures, and he read the instructions about the ark of God. And there in the Bible, he found that when you walk in the door of the tabernacle, what you see right in front of you is an altar. Right between like you and the ark is an altar where redemptive sacrifices are made. And David saw that the only way a sinner can enter the presence of an all-holy God is through a redemptive sacrifice for sin. And so David goes back to bring up the ark. And they did not put it on an ox cart. The Levites carried it with poles. And look how they proceed. They take six steps, stops, and offered a redemptive sacrifice. The number seven represents completion, so they stopped every six steps before they made any progress. Every six steps, they made a burnt offering. And in a burnt offering, you, you place your, your hands on the offering to identify with it, and then it is slain and burned completely. And in doing that, what you are saying is, like this offering, I should be totally destroyed. I understand the seriousness of my sin, but I look to another to die for my sin. 
David got the gospel. And he didn't even see it as clearly as we get to now with the whole counsel of God. But he got it. That it's not through my deeds, it's not through being good enough, but through the sacrifice of another that I can enter into God's presence and know him and experience his blessing. David got the gospel. And what he saw dimly, we can see clearly. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews put it this way. He says, um, it is impossible for the, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, Christ said, Sacrifice and offering, bulls and goats you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Jesus says, here I am, the sacrifice that is necessary. And then the author says, and, when, and we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. Here in part three, the ark points to God's grace. And then finally, part four. The last part in the story. The ark and our joy. Now, a lot of interesting things about the ark and the Levites and the poles and, and you know, sacrifices in the temple and, and, okay, interesting. But so what? Okay, what difference does it make, right? Something as powerful as this does make a difference in your hearts and lives. So that brings us to the ark and our joy. David is filled with the joy that is so great, he totally forgets himself. That's why he's dancing. That's why he's dancing with the servants. And kings do not do that. But you know what? He's not all caught up with himself. He's caught up in the joy of the gospel. Um, here is, is where we see a, a huge difference between man-made religion and God's gospel. Self-righteous religious people are proud if they are performing well and people think highly of themselves. And the other side of the same coin, the other side of the pride coin is this. That if they feel like they're not performing well and if they feel like, you know, people are not thinking highly of themselves they get discouraged and insecure. It took me years and years for me to realize that my discouragement and my insecurities and my self-loathing was actually rooted in sinful pride. That's tough to hear. It's easy to tell somebody arrogant that they're prideful, but it's really difficult for us to hear that the root of our insecurities has the same has the, same, has the same root of, of pride. Now, that is not to kick somebody when you're down. That is to identify, diagnose the problem, and then give you hope. Okay? So, if you're self-righteously religious, 
and, and look into your own performance and evaluating if, if you're doing well or if you're just doing horribly, if you're good enough, not good enough, you are constantly consumed with yourself and your performance. But if you get the gospel, you actually think of yourself less. Because David's self-image is not based on his performance or his, his, his view of himself is not based on people's opinion of him. His view of himself is based on the gospel. That's why he's dancing. He is filled with a joy that makes him just forget himself. When his wife, Michal, King Saul's daughter, Right? So she's royalty. Right? When Michal sees David dancing, it says she despised David. And when David comes home, Michal says to him, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michal, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Here's the deal. People who strive after, grasp after respect will never get it. People who strive after honor won't get it. People who strive after acceptance won't get it. People who strive after approval won't get it. It becomes obvious to everybody. You're like, what are you doing? And it completely short circuits every. It just doesn't work that way. But those who just love and serve God, they don't worry about getting honor, respect, approval. And then they end up getting more honor, respect, and approval after all. Not just necessarily on a superficial level from other people, but we have all of the acceptance we need from the one who created the heavens and the earth, the universe, and holds it all together. If we have his approval, why would we need anybody else's? How can David respond like this, dance like this? He tells us, he says, I will celebrate before the Lord because he chose me. Not because of anything that I've done, but out of sheer grace. He understands grace now. David understands that him being king is just by grace. His salvation is just by grace. It is all by grace. Therefore, I have to celebrate. How could I not celebrate? And the story ends with these words. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Great. There goes God again, just pecking on people. But that totally misses the grace here. Who, who had the heirs of David, the, the royal heirs of David? It was Bathsheba. Not Michal, King Saul's daughter, who is royalty, ruler of the land up to that point. 
but someone who was Bathsheba, who was seen as an adulteress and a commoner. Why? Because, you know what? Here's the deal. God works with people who understand grace. He works in and through people who understand grace. Man-made religion says the only thing that keeps you from God is your sin, so, you know, just stop sinning and everything will be cool. God's grace says, no, what, what keeps you from God is your refusal to admit your sin and to take it seriously. It's your refusal to see your need for God's grace. And it's his grace that, that saves your life and changes your life. Paul did not value grace. Bathsheba did. And so David's heirs came through Bathsheba because she could nurture a child in grace. But more than that, and, and here's the scandal, uh, what the world would consider a scandal, God chose Bathsheba to be the direct ancestor to Christ. The family line goes from Bathsheba to Jesus Christ. God works through people who understand God's grace and point to God's grace. So this morning, as I wrap this up, let me ask you to evaluate your own heart, your own life, where you are right now, okay? My question for you is, do you get the gospel? Oh, yeah, sure. Does your life reflect, does your heart reflect that you get the gospel? Are you just filled with joy and a determination to worship him? Maybe you're stuck at the first step. And you know what? You're really having trouble seeing that you're bad enough to desperately need God's grace. Or you say, yeah, sure, I need God's grace. But you don't really feel it. I mean, just try saying that, that, that I am way worse than I think I am. I mean, we don't want to say that. But I would challenge you to pray, God, show me the sin in my heart. We don't want to pray that. It's like refusing to go to the doctor because we're afraid of what he's going to say when he can give you a diagnosis and then a cure. And we live in denial. So maybe you're stuck at the first step. Maybe you're stuck at the second step. You see that, you see that, that, that you're desperate, but you don't have any hope that God could love you. Or you don't have any hope that, that you can experience God and his blessings and his presence. You know what that means if you're there? That means you are ready for grace. You are ready for it. But maybe you're stuck at this step right now. For others, maybe, maybe you heard the bad news, you heard the good news, but, but you're still not feeling the joy that comes from receiving grace. There's no dance. Wherever you are this morning, I want you to know that believing the good news 
will radically change your life. It will radically change your life. And you cannot believe the gospel if you don't believe the bad news first. And you and I are, are, are so desperate for God's grace. And, and we are far worse than, than we thought. And, and to save us, it took nothing less than the death of God the Son to be slaughtered on the cross and to have his blood poured out for us so that we could be redeemed. And after you see the bad news first, you'll finally see the good news. And the good news, the gospel says that there is a way into God's presence to know him personally, to know his strength, greater than any other strength this world has to offer, to know that, that Jesus is your king, and not only is your king, but he calls you friend. The king calls you friend. And there's nothing that you can do to, to earn that. Jesus has done it all. He lived and died for those who believe in the good news of God's grace. And I am telling you, that good news will radically change your life like nothing else. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I pray in this moment that you would protect us from being distracted. Protect us from our minds wandering. Protect us from being preoccupied with the things that might be going on around us or whatever's happening next. God, help us to seriously think over, ponder, meditate on, on your good news. God, I pray for all of us here that you would graciously show the sin in, in our hearts that we just ignore or that we've just accepted because we don't think it's really that bad. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would lovingly convict us knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God, please help us not to to move forward at all without first enabling us to take our sins seriously. Protect us from living in denial. Help us to see that our sin is dead serious. It's not a game. Help us to see that apart from you, all we could do is, all we could earn is destruction. And then help us to see that you intervene by your grace. God, I help us to understand that um, the degree of our worship indicates the degree to which we take our sin seriously. 
us to see that we have, we have been rescued from, from your wrath and brought in to your love and grace and mercy and fellowship with you. God, help our worship to be, to be partly an expression of just intense relief and joy found in you and your presence with us. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that has not put their faith and trust in you this morning, I pray that you give them eyes to see the seriousness of, of, of their sin, just like you had to do with the rest of us. And God, give them eyes to see your grace and that Jesus lived for them and died for them and rose again to give them new life new purpose with Jesus as their king as a part of the kingdom of God. God, give us all eyes to see you in your kingdom. We pray these things in, in your name.